Thank you very much, uh, Hugh and Liz. Uh, we're on to our final uh, uh, presentation for the for the afternoon. It's from Dr. Yanni Gieber, um, and it's on his work on um, feeding the poor, revealing relief food from dental calculus analysis in victims of the Great Irish Famine. Cool. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm afraid we're going to finish on a low because uh, when I present my research in general, people feeling very depressed afterwards. And uh, it's come to a stage now with my colleagues actually referring to my research as the, the bioarchaeology of misery. Um, but what I'm really interested in, and most of my research in recent years, has been to be focusing on those who are um, present in the historical records, but we don't really know much about them. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in the life experiences of those who were marginalized and those who were poor and the working classes and so on. And, uh, and this, um, this interest really started uh, when I first started working on this particular project um, in Kilkenny, uh, which is for me almost 14 years ago now. And uh, it relates uh, to actually one of the largest archaeologically studied mass burial grounds in the world. And, um, and these, uh, these came across, um, uh, Colin O'Driscoll actually found them in, in 2005. Um, as they were redeveloping an area in Kilkenny at the site of the former Union Workhouse. Uh, so it was during that development work that human remains uh, came, uh, came up uh, at the corner of the boundaries of the, the former workhouse institution. And, uh, and these were excavated the following year, and that was the year when I started to analyze the remains. And um, in total, there were 63 uh, burial pits that contained the remains of uh, a minimum of 970 individuals. And, uh, and later on, I was able to date them quite precisely from the historical records to the height of the, the Great Irish Famine. And um, to, to study the famine in Kilkenny is actually quite interesting because um, even before I started, um, there's this general conception about the, the Irish Famine in general that it was really worse in the West and it was sort of okay in the, the East and in Ulster people weren't really that affected, but uh, it's just simply not true. Um, in Kilkenny, um, the Kilkenny city in particular, uh, had um, a lot of tourism in the 19th century, so there's a lot of records from Victoria and Kilkenny that describes the city as being very fashionable and it has all these, um, it's paved with marble and the local marble, uh, it has fashionable shops, it was famous for its, for its uh, theatre and the Kilkenny races and so on. Uh, but there were also a lot of accounts of uh, severe social de um, deprivation and poverty in Kilkenny as well. Uh, so when you try to look for those specific uh, descriptions, you do find quite a lot of them. Um, so there are descriptions of people being marked by the physical sign of hunger and starvation long before the famine. And uh, this one account, uh, which is about 10 years before the famine, which I, I think is one of the, the worst ones I've come across, um, uh, to be honest, because it describes, it's a German visitor to Kilkenny. So he goes to Kilkenny because that's um, a place where, where, where tourists went to in Ireland in the 19th century. And he describes as his, uh, as his uh, coach approached uh, that it was surrounded by hordes of beggars, uh, women and children, and uh, one of the passengers in the coach was eating um, a gooseberry and he spit out the skin and immediately there was a mother, threw herself on the ground, picked it up and put it in the mouth of her child. And this is before the famine, and uh, you can just imagine the situation that occurred about 10 years later. So uh, the Kilkenny Union Workhouse sort of reflects um, the local poverty as well, because this was a massive institution. Um, all the workhouses in Ireland were um, introduced just a few years before the famine started. 
And the Kilkenny Workhouse uh, was actually the fifth largest in the country, so it was built for 1,300 inmates. Um, during the famine, it became severely overcrowded, uh, and during the height of the famine, there were over four and a half, uh, almost four and a half thousand people relying on indoor relief in Kilkenny. And, and this is the time when Kilkenny had a population of about 20,000, so you can just imagine um, uh, the conditions then. So, um, what I've been focusing on is primarily the human remains, um, but I'm studying the human remains in a biocultural perspective, which means that even though the human remains is the focus of my study, I still consider all the evidence I have around it. So that includes the archaeological evidence and it includes all the historical uh, contextualization. Um, so there were nearly 1,000 individuals and I produced quite um, a lot of publications relating to this project. And in 2010, the remains were returned to Kilkenny and they were reburged. And so they were interred in the Kilkenny Famine Memorial Garden, which was created for this purpose. Uh, but before they were reburied, um, uh, we actually sampled some bone fragments from nearly all the individuals, uh, so rib bone fragments and teeth from about 200 individuals. Uh, so they are uh, curated by the, the National Museum. So that basically means that it's possible to continue to do research on these remains even though they have been reburied. Um, in general, I should point out that when you rebury human, archaeological human remains, it's basically a destruction because when you excavate a human skeleton, it's being exposed to oxygen in the, well, in the, in the air, in the atmosphere, and if you would bury it again, uh, the, it's going to degrade very quickly. So a reburial, an archaeological reburial, is always a destruction of the, the, the remains, basically. Um, but thanks to the, these remains being uh, sampled, uh, I was able to do continuous studies. And uh, for this particular project that I got funding from the Royal Irish Academy on, we wanted to focus on diets and we wanted to focus on dental calculus analysis because uh, this is a technique that's fairly new uh, or not implemented that often, uh, basically. And uh, you may wonder why we're interested in diet because we know a lot about what the pre-famine diet was in Ireland. Uh, we know that the poor were sustained on potato and milk. Uh, we know that this was a very monotonous diet where it was relatively adequate in terms of nutrition and, calor and caloric in intake. Um, but it also made people very vulnerable. So in general, people would have starved every year between the exhaustion of the old harvest and the, and the new harvest, basically. And in the 19th century as well, the Irish poor were often being described as this was their own choice, basically, that they choose to eat potatoes. And um, so, um, but, but obviously that, that wasn't true. And well, you all know the context of that, so I don't need to explain it. Um, but poverty and potato consumption and poverty was very much um, strongly linked. But this was not a choice by the poor, there was more of a necessity. Uh, so they would have eaten other types of food if it was made available to them. So obviously during the famine, um, potato wasn't available to them um, anymore. And it was chiefly replaced with Indian meal uh, or maize or corn that was imported at vast amounts from the United States. And, uh, and this was the, the food that they were supplied in the workhouse as well. So those who got access to the workhouse, um, that was the workhouse diet basically. And, um, and in Kilkenny, because the records are quite fragmented, so I have the minute books from most of the years of the famine, but then I also have to supplement them with the, the, the newspaper um, archives from, from that period from Kilkenny as well. So I am sort of able to reconstruct the diet in the workhouse, but not fully for all the years. Uh, but in general, during the famine, then potato was replaced by Indian meal. 
And so they generally got to stir about a porridge and milk for breakfast and dinner. So those were the only times they got food. And later on in the famine, uh, they also got a vegetable soup. Uh, we also know the ingredients of that soup. It's, it's published in, in one of the articles. And this was, would have been a very weak soup and not particularly nutritious. And um, just so studying diet from human skeletal remains, it's actually the only direct way to study diet in archaeology. Um, because uh, this is the tissue, or this is the, the remains of the actual person who lived in the past. And um, because the human skeleton is, is uh, sort of adapting, um, our skeletons are adapting to our environment, uh, we are using the skeletons to inform us about the people. Uh, we're not really studying the skeletons, we're studying the people. And uh, that means then that I have, I'm able to do a lot of social studies on sort of which aspect of the population had that particular diet and how did they affect the general health and so on. Uh, so that's the, the premises um, of this study. So uh, in terms of diet, what we've done so far, we've done isotope analysis, uh, which I'm going to mention briefly, uh, but also microparticle analysis of the dental calculus and proteomic analysis as well. And I think this is the first time proteomics has been applied to archaeological human remains in Ireland. So uh, starting with the isotope analysis, and this has been undertaken by my colleague at the University of Bradford. Uh, and she used it as part of uh, her PhD, where she looked at a, an, a sample from London, which was actually Irish immigrants. And, but she used Kilkenny as a comparative uh, sample. And um, in general terms, when you're looking at carbon and nitrogen uh, from isotopes, the higher nitrogen value you have, the more protein you have in your diet, and the lesser, the more vegetable diet. So the Kilkenny uh, signals are here. So you can see they have a clear vegetarian diet. And, uh, and that's also what we know from the potato diet. Um, what's interesting from what you found as well is that we have indications of C4 diets here. And, um, and it's basically because plants, um, the photosynthesis process of plants would generate different isotopic signals. Uh, so in this part of the world, we have so-called C3 plants. Uh, but in other parts of the world, and particularly in South America, uh, you have plants that um, uh, generate uh, C4 signals and maize is one of them. Um, so that, the fact that we have evidence of, of maize consumption here shows that we have people that were relying on relief food. And because the bone is remodeling, it's sort of changing, um, the cells are being um, built up and then destroyed and so on. Uh, the isotope signals we see in the bone, generally, it's, a, it's a mean average value over a period of years before death. Uh, so this is indicating that we have people relying on relief food before the famine. Um, but the more new research and analysis we've done is looking at dental calculus. And um, it's, it's more exciting in a sense because we can actually identify the type of foodstuffs they've been eating from that. So the dental calculus, that's the mineralized plaque or the tartar um, that we'll go to the dental hygienist to, to get rid of. And um, it basically uh, encapsulates our, um, what's in our oral environment at the time. So that in could include food particles. Uh, it could also include bacteria. And, and contaminants and things like that. Uh, but we were particularly interested in the, the food particles um, then. So just by the fact that we had sampled some teeth before a burial made this study possible. Um, so one first part of this analysis was the microparticle analysis. And that's looking at uh, granules from starch that you can get from the dental calculus. And that's my collaborator, Monica Trump, at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Uh, who did that analysis. And uh, so she basically dissolved the deposits and 
were able to look at them underneath the microscope. So you would see the um, you see the microscopic pictures here, and you basically identify them to a plant. Then, if you're able to. And uh, what she did find out is a variation of different uh, vegetables that indicates both a pre-famine and famine period diet. Uh, the way that the calculus is accumulated in our mouth means that we, we can't date it in any way. Uh, so the, the remains that we're identifying could be from the last day of this person's life or the last 10 years of that person's life. So we can only get like a general picture um, of the, the people's diet during their lifetime. So what we found the majority of was corn, again, Indian meal. Uh, so it's not surprising. And, but this could also reflect what we know, uh, also from the famine period, that the corn that was imported, the people didn't really know how to cook it properly. Um, because to be able to identify these starch granules, um, they, um, they basically, if you boil vegetables, the starch is going to dissolve. So you can't, you can't see it in, in the, this type of analysis. But the fact that we are able to see quite a lot of corn may indicate that it wasn't processed or cooked <laughs> properly. And we know that from the famine as well, that people had real difficulties how to, how to, to cook this um, foodstuffs and that people suffered um, from severe stomach pains and so on because of it as well. And uh, it might also explain why well, we actually had quite a little, very few evidence of potato um, because people would have boiled potato um, during the 19th century. That was the way that they were eating it. Um, but nevertheless, the fact that we do have some evidence of potato starch may also reflect the particular mode that the poor were, were cooking potato at the time, because uh, the most common way was to, to parboil it, um, basically meaning that they left one, the core of the potato uncooked, basically, because uh, this was a way for them to fill their stomachs, basically, so they could combat hunger that way. Um, but it also meant that the, they got less nutrition out of the vegetable uh, because of that. But that, that was often described as a particular Irish way of the cooking potatoes at that time. So you can see up here that we were able to do this type of analysis on 42 samples. Uh, so that was the microparticle analysis. And um, we also did proteomics, uh, which is looking at protein. So you can analyze protein from the dental calculus. And we're able to get uh, information from 16 samples. And this is a, it's a really new technique that's being applied to archaeology. And it's, it's particularly fascinating and very interesting because you can identify protein to quite a detailed level. So you can identify it to species, whether it's a plant and it's a particular type of plant, or to animals, so a particular species. So with cattle, for instance, we can tell if the protein comes from cattle, but also what type of tissue. So if it comes from muscle tissue, if it comes from bone, or if it comes from milk, and so on. So with that information, uh, we do find in, uh, quite a lot of evidence of milk. So that was the other part of the potato diet in 19th century Ireland. Uh, what's surprising in a way, I suppose, is that uh, the majority of the milk identified derived from cattle and not from goats, which you would sort of expect, because the goat was referred to as the, the poor man's cow. Um, but the fact that we have a lot of cattle may also suggest that the, the milk came from the, the workhouse diet, because it was something that they, they needed to have in vast amounts, basically. So it might have been a commercial production setup that that, well, you needed cattle for that, basically. Um, but the most surprising find, in a way, uh, was that we found evidence of egg protein in four samples. So four samples out of uh, 16. And egg is something that the people, wouldn't, the poor people, the, uh, the working classes would not have been eaten uh, in the 19th century. And this was considered a luxury food uh, for the working classes. And, um, and even though it was quite common, um, 
for the for the poor to um, sort of keep uh, chickens. Uh, it was generally never eaten. It was something to be sold, uh, basically. Um, and even from Sweden, as my grandmother used to tell, uh, she was born in 1912, and her family was poor agricultural farm laborers. That they never had. They had chickens, but they never e ate the eggs. Not even during Easter, because that was always for selling. Because that's a way to to get money, basically. And eggs was one major food export from Ireland in the 19th century. In the 1830s, uh, between um, uh, 60 and 90 million eggs were exported. Uh, and as you know, the food exports increased in Ireland during the famine. And in 1850, uh, 90 million eggs were exported to Liverpool alone. So you have to see it in that context. So uh, the general impression I get is that these people that I studied who died in the workhouse in Kilkenny, that they, they came from quite varied backgrounds. So even though they're working class, their experience of poverty and um, being working class could have differed quite a bit. Um, but they all ended up in the workhouse eventually. And, uh, and there are numerous accounts of that as well, that people who during the famine or before the famine were considered to be respectable farmers and so on, they found it very difficult to not just enter the workhouse, but also to receive poor relief because there was such a shame and social stigma associated with it. And I also got this impression that people came from different backgrounds before they entered the workhouse uh, from looking at the skeletons as well. Um, so this is one individual, uh, an older adult male, who has features in, in a skeleton that suggest to me that he was an industrial worker and that particularly that he worked in the textile industry uh, because he's got notches on his teeth, which could be from biting a, a, a metal needle or something like that. And he's got stress, um, stress injuries to his shoulder from this type of movement, so moving your shoulder backwards. Uh, and also he has a dislocated coccyx and also facets on his uh, leg bones that could indicate that he was sitting in this um, 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 tailor position, if you know what I mean. And Kilkenny had a, quite a large textile industry that basically went uh, bust in the 1830s. So there was a lot of poverty in Kilkenny even before the famine uh, because of that. So this is possible a, a man who was, was fairly well off in the terms of he was an industrial worker before the famine, but with the famine progressing, he ended up in the workhouse. Um, we have another individual who has this particular pathological change to his spine. Uh, and this is a condition we don't really know the cause of. We know that it causes fusion of the vertebra and ossification of ligaments. Uh, it's called DISH, or diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis. And uh, we know that it's more common in people who have a very high diet, a uh, high protein diet. So in bioarchaeology in general, this is something we generally only see in uh, high social status populations. But we did see a few of those in Kilkenny as well. Um, so I think my research is sort of giving a different perspective of what the famine entailed for the people in Kilkenny. Uh, as I said, the workhouse was severely overcrowded. Um, so nearly a fifth of the population would have been at the workhouse at one stage. And there were also numerous deaths in the workhouse. So this burial ground that we studied had the remains of about 1,000 individuals, uh, but there were well over 4,000 who died in the workhouse in Kilkenny uh, during the famine. And there were also numerous accounts of food riots occurring, and there were also refugee camps in Kilkenny, and this would have been people that came from the west of Ireland to try to, to see if they could get any help from the East, basically. Um, just to finish very quickly, just to talk a little bit about the new research we're doing, and um, it more relates to the consequences of relief food. Because the Indian meal that was um, uh, imported as relief food is actually not nutritious, or it wasn't nutritious in the 19th century because they didn't really know how to cook it properly. And uh, so it generally resulted in pellagra, uh, which is an icing deficiency. 
And at that time in the 19th century, they weren't able to diagnose it, but medical historians have been arguing that pelagra existed in Ireland during the famine because of the symptoms that are being described. And, and this is a really severe disease that would eventually lead to death, and it has lots of psychological symptoms as well. Uh, what's particularly interesting is that uh, pelagra can potentially impact the bone remodeling process. And I have a PhD student who is um, working in New Zealand, uh, she's actually in, in Texas right now, uh, looking at the microstructural effects of starvation in the people who died in the Kilkenny workhouse. And she's trying to see if she can see evidence of pellagra from that. So in general terms, what I'm trying to do is that I'm studying the human remains, but I'm essentially studying the people who experienced the famine, who experienced the workhouse in, in Kilkenny um, and experienced poverty in the 19th century. And that's the huge benefit with studying human remains is that we can get these personal stories out of the human remains if, if you interpret them in that context, basically. Um, I could, yeah, I'll probably mention this very quickly. I mean, there's a lot of social stigma associated with poverty and so on. And the fact that this burial ground in Kilkenny was forgotten about is something I found really, really fascinating. And it relates to the poverty, uh, the, the stigma associated with shame and so on. Um, but there's also one other aspect, um, and I actually removed that slide. But anyway, this burial ground was never consecrated. And, and I can sort of follow that discussion that went on after the famine. Uh, that the, the Board of Guardians managed to get a burial ground elsewhere, uh, and they couldn't get that consecrated either because the, the Catholic clergy in Kilkenny refused to consecrate it because they had buried a Protestant among them, among the Catholics. And it was also extremely important for people in the 19th century to have this respectful burial and to not have been buried in consecrated ground would have been very difficult for those who survived to be able to acknowledge that that happened to their family members. And these are the people I like to thank. Thank you.